Writers Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, flying solo today, but I don't think that's going to be a problem because I'm pretty sure we're going to have a fascinating conversation with our guest today, Larry Baker, who was with us once many years ago. You know, Writers Voices has been, we've been broadcasting and streaming since 2006, and so we've... um, I had a couple, we've had a number of guests that have come back to us um, two or three times, and I think this is Larry's second time, but I could be wrong. It might be his third. Anyway, <laughs> Larry. Uh, I think it, it, it's the second because we did something on a good man. Yes, that's right. That is right. My favorite book, okay. <laughs> Larry Baker's wife would insist that the use of career in conjunction with his life is a bit misleading. Admitting that, however, Larry would still insist he's done a few things in his life that might constitute real work. With a PhD in English from the University of Iowa, he began teaching composition and literature on the college level in 1988, but um then he went back to graduate school and earned postdoc credit in history, and he um, began teaching American history courses at community college level, which he really enjoyed. And he, before that, he was a Pizza Hut manager, a Pinkerton security guard, uh, MC at a strip club, and salesman, sports retor- reporter, and hotel desk clerk. He moved to Iowa City in 1980 to finish his Ph.D., was soon involved in local politics, and from that experience came his second novel, Athens, America, 2005, a book that managed to agitate a lot of people locally, apparently. And although he'd been publishing short stories since he was a teenager, he was 50 before his first novel, The Flamingo Rising, was published. And it was one of three finalists for the Barnes & Noble Great New Voices Award for 1997. And it also won other awards and was adapted for a Hallmark movie. His third novel, A Good Man, which is the one we talked about in 2009, was nominated for Book of the Year by the Southeast Independent Booksellers Association. And then he has written a number of other novels since then, and we are now talking about his latest novel, Wyman and the Florida Knights, which he assures us will not get anywhere near Hallmark unless Hallmark oh, decides to do uh, some... Unless Hallmark pulls out, you know, Hugh Hefner and Bob Guccione to yeah, produce yeah. and direct it. And Larry was included on the Iowa Literary Walk of Fame in 2010. So welcome back to Writer's Voices, Larry. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's, it's good to actually talk to another human being. I usually <laughs> just sit in my office here in Iowa City and just stare at a computer and, and, and you know, drink coffee and, and listen to my wife in there yelling at me, Larry, get in here, you know, Vanna White Zone or something. I don't <laughs> so are you retired from teaching at this point? Oh, I, uh, I retired about five years ago. Um, I think they they finally figured out that I was definitely uh, old school, politically incorrect, and um, anyway, uh, I, I had a great time. But it was I was seventy. I mean, that's that's time to to relax a little bit. Uh, and, and for I, you, relaxing really, meant writing more books. Oh, that's it. Is. <laughs> I you know I published uh, this the Wyman in November uh, of 
of last year. What is that, like six months ago, five months ago? And I've already written another book since then. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that, that's what I thought when I think about it. Like, where the heck did that come from? Wow. But I did 300 pages in 10 weeks, um, a very odd and different kind of story. It's a ghost story. Okay, aren't all of your stories kind of odd and different? Um, that, now you're talking <laughs> like my first wife. Um <laughs> Larry, you're the oddest, most different man I've ever known in my life. Anyway. Well, um, that, I'm surprised you're not still married because that's what can keep keep things interesting. Oh, well, see, it works on the second marriage. It didn't work on the first uh, marriage. Okay, okay. No, I've been, I've been married 44 years for my second marriage. Um, well, congratulations. Five. Mm. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and it's like uh, all of her friends are astonished, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> Well, they were astonished we got married, period. Um, but a long time ago, I've grown up and matured since then. Um, so, Well, at least well, one of us has. Well, <laughs> give it time, Monica. There's still hope. Um, now, I'm, you, I unfortunately was born old. <laughs> I was, I was, oh, no, you mean you were born mature? I was born mature, yeah. Oh, it's, boring. I know, I know. But it, it happens when, you know, when you um, are the oldest daughter in a, you know, with younger siblings. and. Well, how many kids, did you, uh, brothers and sisters, did you have? Well, I had four brothers and sisters. Three of them are younger, but I, I did a lot of caretaking. And then I, I had my first child when I was 18. So, um, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I got my first marriage. I was 19 and was a father at 19. Um, and so you I, know what I, that's I, like. Uh, yeah, well, I, in my case, I was not, I, I will admit, I was not a very good uh, husband, father, probably human being when I was 19, 20 years old. Um, and that took a while to change. And luckily, I, I, I met my current wife in 1978. And um, we've been together ever since. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Oh, Lord. Um, Does your mother's womb count? (laughs) Um, No, I... A writer is is the same thing as just being a storyteller in in my world. I mean, I've always wanted to tell... I was telling stories when I was in grade school. Um, You know, you just make up stories. And some people would call it a lie. I just preferred to call it fiction. <laughs> and by the time I got into high school, I was actually putting them down, you know, taking one of those old Smith Corona typewriters. Um, in fact, I found last, about a month ago, I found a copy of my first ever written short story when I was 15 years old. I kept that copy. Um, the paper is yellow now. But that's the one at 15 that started it off. I got published at 15 and published short stories up until I was the age of 50 and then got a novel novel published. So that one that you wrote at 15, was it any good? Looking, you know, from uh, your vantage point now? <laughs> I think it was good for a 15-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not the sort of thing that I... Uh, uh, it, it got published, uh, but it got published in a, in a religious magazine. And I've been searching for years to try and find the original magazine. Uh, I, I may not even. I may have killed that publication, <laughs> that story. But um, it was, you know, it was it was based on a, a religious phase I was going through about 
I, I rewrote, reinterpreted the crucifixion. So I, n- no small job there, um, but I, I told it from a different point of view, and it, you know, it it worked, and uh, it's it, it's. Uh, it's not something I would of, show anybody. What point of oh, view it, were you uh, telling I told it from? him from the first-person point of view of a Roman soldier who is witnessing oh. the crucifixion. And what he's doing is, and he's actually standing behind the cross, and what he's doing is he's, he's talking about the approaching procession, the events, and the people, but all from the point of view of looking behind the cross. Wow, and uh, and that's the title of the story: "A View from Behind the Cross." Um, I was, you know, looking back, the only thing that this really strikes me is that it's an interesting point of view, and because uh, he has no idea about the significance, but what he's describing, the reader will understand is significant, but he doesn't understand what he's describing. Um, so you, you said I wrote odd and different stories. Um, <laughs> and it started out that way. It started out that way. And I'm trying to think, what is the most, like, normal, uh, un, most realistic story I've ever written? And I think I've only done one. Uh, we may not have read called The Education of Nancy Adams about a high school teacher. Pretty much grounded in reality. Uh, and uh, about a, a woman who goes back to her high school where she graduated to teach. And that sort of, so she has her history, past and present, she's dealing with. Uh, but it was really a, a realistic story. Other than that, you know, I'm writing about ghosts, I'm writing about swingers and strippers in Florida, I'm, I'm writing about, um, you know, religious, evan- you know, evangelist um Predicting the Second Coming of Christ, which is the, a good man novel. Um, and then about um, one of my favorites was From a Distance, from the point of view, two points of view, switching back and forth. And one of the points of view is first-person point of view of a totally insane woman. She's absolutely bonkers. Um, but ab- I find her absolutely fascinating. Um <laughs> But, but she, How do she, you she, get to know these characters? Oh, I, well, I married one of them. Um, <laughs> the second one, my second marriage. Um, no, she's been a character in uh, versions of my, my present wife and characters in books. Um, she was the mother in Flamingo Rising, for example, but that's another story. She always gets mad because in that book, the mother dies, and she, she's always held that against me. Um <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I, I make up most of this stuff, but you know, every writer will tell you we steal, we steal shamelessly from, from life around us and people that we know, little bits and pieces. Um, I, I, the thing I like about Wyman, this, the new book, is that it it's very fic- original. I mean, I, I don't know too many of those characters. I understand the the psychology of Peter Wyman, the artist, the sort of megalomaniac, ego-driven, and I'm the artist, I create reality. I understand that because there's a version of that in me. I, I, I wondered about that as a professor and a writer and, you know, which is an artist. Oh, yeah, you, you, artist you always have this yeah. feeling that you, you see things that other people don't 
And what you really have to do is just slap yourself every once in a while and say, no, you don't. You just have a knack with words, and you can tell stories. But you're not any smarter than anybody else. You're not any more profound than anybody else. Uh, and, and Peter Wyman's uh, problem is that he really does believe he's special, <laughs> and he's not. Um, and, of course, the, the Angel Darling character uh, – uh, your, re- your listeners don't know about that, but you can probably talk about later how you were the inspiration for that character. And I, I appreciate you telling me your story. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> no, Angela, I appreciate I could not have written that character without knowing you. Oh, so now my. your listeners okay. are saying, well, what's <laughs> going on here? Don't believe a word he says. He just told us he makes stuff up. <laughs> Um, all I will tell you is that Angel Darling is, is one of my favorite female characters, and um, she's a stripper swinger in Florida who used to be a nurse. Uh, but she's, I think, the heroine of the story. She's the she's the person that really makes the difference in everybody's life at the end. Mm. Now, the interesting so. thing is this book is written from – there's a lot of characters, and uh-huh. and we don't even meet Wyman until halfway through. Right. And um, and Angel shows up at the beginning, but then or not the beginning, maybe a third of the way, and then yeah. we don't we don't see her for quite a while. So this is a, an unusual structure for a book. Well, it's 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 odd because what I wanted to do was create sort of like. Here's a here's a here's a cast of characters, and here's their background. Each one of those little chapters about a character is like, what's their history? What are the secrets that are starting to be hidden? You know, and everything. Uh, and then if you notice that the first half of the book ends with the Wyman character being introduced, who's completely outside of this group of Florida characters, and he has his own history he's trying to escape from. And he's told that the only place you can go and disappear is this little town in Florida called Knightville. And so once he gets there, you know, you've got, what, 1866 to uh, 2016, 150 years of history in the first half of the book. And the second half of the book is one year. It's all of that history starts bouncing off of each other. And, yeah, um, we, we bring it up to date with, the election of 2016, the, a murder that has not been solved um, until now, um, the past, um, and that 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 Black Panther that is mentioned in the first chapter, it shows up at the final chapter as well, 150 years later. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm stretching the, stretching the truth here a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, you had to create these individual characters to see how they bounce off each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, me, I I really like, I mean, the female characters to me are Sandra and Angel, I think are two great characters in their own completely different ways. Um, Sandra's the newspaper woman uh, who has lost her mother, and, and Angel is a... It's a stripper who you don't know much about her past, but you get hints that it wasn't good. Um, and they are really solid people who hold the town together at the end. Um, 
The other guy, I mean, the men in the story are a mess. They're just a hot mess. <laughs> they are. Oh, Lord. Uh, you know, you've got the rich guy, poor guy's cousin who's the sheriff. You've got a rich guy who, I won't tell you what he did, but you know what he did. And it involves the sheriff's wife anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really strange structure that I had to play with. Uh, but to get as much history in as possible, I had to compress a lot in the first 150 pages. Before we get too far into our conversation, I want to just read the summary of Wyman and the Florida Knights. Peter Wyman was the most famous portrait painter in America, but his fame had come with a high price, his mind and soul. Nearing the end of his life, he wants to erase himself, but how? He decides to go into hiding, but where? He's clueless until an aging blonde cashier in St. Augustine points him in the right direction. There's one place you might go look for, north of Orlando, if it still exists. I've heard stories about it for years, but now it seems to have disappeared. Hasn't been in the news for decades. Ex-boyfriend of mine came from there and told me it was full of crazies, which I thought was funny since he turned out to be a meth dealer. Place doesn't exist? All I know is what I've heard. You want to disappear? You go to Nightville. Well, I'm curious um, how this story, the story, the plot and the characters, how do they come to you? Is it, is it plot first? Is it you start with one character and build from that? Is it theme? Um, is it, you know, where do you, where does it, how do you start and how does it grow? Well, you know, if, if, you, if somebody looked at every book that I've written up to this point, up to Wyman, they would see certain themes that recur over and over again, things that I'm interested in. I'm always interested in obsessive love, and I've always been interested in questions of faith. And, you know, I had a real strong religious background when I was a teenager and, you know, did a lot of, you know, spontaneous preaching and tents, uh, lost all that. But I'm, I've always been fascinated by the concept of oh, God. I, I don't believe in God now. But I've never given up the idea, well, maybe it's true, maybe, who knows. And so for this book, literally, I wanted to tell a Bible story. I wanted to retell a Bible story. And the story I picked was Cain and Abel. Mm -hmm. That was the original thought. I'm going to retell Cain and Abel in a modern setting. I, and, you know, it's been done before in other writers, but uh, my version and I couldn't have brothers, but I wanted to create, first of all, a version of the Garden of Eden. And that's Florida in the 1800s. And if you remember the first chapter where they talk about, you know, one of the mistakes that the, the, the evangelist makes when he comes to Florida is he doesn't know the difference between a garden and a jungle. <laughs> and, and it's the jungle that's going to kill him. He thinks he's in a garden, but the jungle is going to kill him. Um, so there's the setting, Eden, Florida, 1800s. Instead of having brothers, well, let's make them cousins. It's easier to deal with. Um, rich and poor, but they both fall in love with the same woman. But she marries the poor cousin. Now, when you hear Cain Abel, you know, well, there's, there's got to be some murder involved. But it's not the murder from the Bible. It's a different murder that one of the cousins commits. Uh, so that's the basic story. 
And then out of that comes all the other characters. And one of the reasons that Peter Wyman doesn't show up until late is because he wasn't going to be in the book at all. (laughs) But I got 130 pages into the book, and I realized, as a writer, how the hell am I going to tie all of these stories together? I need somebody to come in as an outsider and also as as a sort of a, a confidant of the murderer who's going to confess these things and reveal stuff. And in the process, Wyman reveals stuff about himself. So he doesn't show up for 150 pages, but he's absolutely necessary to sort of bind all these stories together. And, um, and, and it's, it's art. This is what the writer does. He, he takes all these little stories and puts them together. So uh, it sounds really pretentious now that I'm thinking about it. I'll listen to myself here. You know, I'm going to create this world and tie it all together and everything. Um, but basically, it's just you write in little spasms of like six hours a day. And after a couple of months, you start to see a pattern and you go back and rewrite tying stuff together you need a character to fill in the other characters and like Peter Wyman was an afterthought but so was Angel Darling she was going to be a one page character she was going to Sonny was going to meet her in that strip club and it was going to be really about Sonny and his sort of desolate life his sort of life of just easy money and pleasure but no purpose Uh, and within a page um, Angel Darling became a very interesting character to me. <laughs> and boy, she took off after that. And um, and she is all made up, I mean, in fiction, but um, obviously, you know, I don't know women like that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a virgin. <laughs> um, I've never been to a strip club. I've never seen Wait, wait, like. wasn't there something in your bio about strip clubs? Oh, that. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay, you got me. Um, but that, you know, I was 18 years old when I was the MC of a strip club. I lied about my age to get that job. I walked in, rented a tuxedo, and walked in and applied for the master ceremonies job. <laughs> and they gave it to me. And my job was simply in between acts to entertain drunk Air Force and Army guys in, in San Antonio, Texas at the Green Gate Club, uh, and tell jokes and keep them drinking and keep them in line for the next act five minutes later. Uh, but I learned a lot, you know, off stage at that club about um, the lifestyle, as they say. Mm. Well, I don't know much about strip clubs, and I didn't even know they had MCs. <laughs> oh, well, uh, here's the thing. A uh, strip club might be a little bit uh, of a misnomer because back when I did this, it was like 1965. This was the leftover burlesque club. I mean, these were not just women that came out and took their clothes off. They came out and did some sort of performance with a snake, with a bubble. We had a, a woman who took her clothes off while riding a bicycle. <laughs> Have you seen the current season of The Marvelous Miss Maisel, Mrs. Maisel? I have not. Well, I you need it, to I go can. watch it because she gets a job as an MC in a club exactly like what you're talking about. She stole my – they stole my – I'm suing. Bastard <laughs> stole my idea. Stole they my life. Did. They did. They stole your life and they put a female Jewish comedian in uh, New York in it. 
Well, that's my doppelganger. Okay. Um, so it, it, every writer steals, and and uh, I. Um, uh, uh, the interesting thing about Angel is uh, she's the kind of character that lets you <coughs> be totally obscene as a writer. You, it's, it's very hard to deal with sexuality and sex, and, and and but she has such an attitude about the whole thing that it's very I, uh, to me. I find her a very endearing character, someone that you actually you don't judge her at all. She's just somebody who who is comfortable being who she is. Very natural. Right, right. And um, she never gets away from, like, the nurse, but she wants to take care of people, and she takes care of Sonny and her, her husband. Um, so, so the interesting, you, you say writers steal. You even steal from yourself, don't you? <laughs> oh, sure. I, I have used versions of, one character over and over again. Yes, and Harry. How do you Harry? What's his last name? Harry Ducharme. Ducharme. Yeah. He shows up very briefly in in Wyman in the Florida Nights. You know, <laughs> Harry. Uh, my second novel, the one about Iowa City politics. Um, I've never really liked it. I've never, as a writer, I've never been satisfied with it. It didn't work for me, even though it was published. I've gone back and rewritten that novel and added Harry Ducharme as a character. And I'm going to republish it eventually. Um, but it's a wonderful character of this voice in the night. Um, so he's a major character in one book, uh, earlier book. He's the major character in A Good Man. He's mentioned in Wyman. And the book I just finished, um, um, the ghost story book, is has Harry as a character in it again. <laughs> he's a late-night late radio talk show host that a taxi driver listens to as the taxi driver is driving around Oklahoma City and all of his passengers are ghosts. Um, so I, I find Harry Descharm to me my favorite character, period. So how uh, much of you is in Harry Descharm? Oh, the, the, I'm not a drinker, uh, which is Harry's problem. Uh, but here's what, it, it, from a good man, if you remember, here's what I, I sort of empathize with with Harry is a person who feels like he has failed, but and wants to do the right thing, um, but he realizes he's, he's he's disappointed people, he's made mistakes, and he realizes he's like he doesn't have any more chances left until the very end of the story when he gets a chance to redeem himself. I found that an absolutely fascinating idea of a man who is never as good as he wanted to be, but mm-hmm. gets a second chance. Uh, I, 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 he's very close to my heart. I, I identify with Harry as a person who struggles, um, and, and he has this real loud sort of public voice as opposed to the sort of private voice in your head, or the guilt-ridden, uh, thoughtful voice in your head. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I, I, I find Harry the, a, a fascinating human being, much less a character. Mm. So who's, so in Wyman, like I said, you, you're really drawn to the female characters. 
um, to Sandra and, and Angel, darling. And um, the men, it's interesting you say you're not a drinker because you do write about men who drink a lot, don't you? You know, <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about that, but I, I guess I do. Uh, I, I, maybe it's because I, I see, uh, I don't want to offend anybody here, but I see people who drink too much as using a crutch. Um, and so they don't have to deal with reality, mm. not, not just social drinkers, but, you know, right, right. People who drink to, for, to numb themselves and to forget and to, and to not deal with things. Uh, and maybe that's all the men and most of the men in my stories. Huh? <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Larry Baker, author of Wyman and the Florida Nights. And Larry, can you read about five, six minutes for us? Uh, yes, if you let me pull up a... I'm on the computer. It's easier to read off a computer screen instead of a book because I can't see very well. Huh. And when I do readings in public, I have to print out the pages in large font. Um I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, I, I cannot read from a book, so it's going to take me a second to get. Let's okay. start from the beginning. Right, the very first pages. All right. Okay. The book is called Wyman and the Florida Nights. It's two sections, book one and book two. Book one opens with the subtitle of The Past as Prologue. Then you go down to... The chapter heading, which is the first nights, K-N-I-G-H-S-T, yes, 1866. So this is where the story begins. Thomas Knight went to Florida in 1866 with God, a gun, and $1,000 in gold. His ancestors had sailed west to the New World. He took a train to the Old South. From Pittsburgh to Jacksonville, then by private carriage to St. Augustine, where a community of free blacks was expecting him, and then by flat-bottom barge on the St. Johns River until it met the Okalawaha River, and then deeper into central Florida. Knight had been to Europe, as well as the American West. He had read William Bartram, Henry David Thoreau, Jefferson's Notes on Virginia. He could cite scripture in his sleep and argue with Darwin in his mind, but nothing had prepared him for Florida. The god he carried came in two editions. One was a 10-pound, leather-bound, Old and New Testament King James Version that had been in the Knight family for a 100 years, complete with pages of art depicting the wrath of God and love of Jesus. That edition was called The Big Word by Knight's heathen brother Hiram to distinguish it from the pocket edition of the New Testament that Thomas Knight was always pointing at his brother right before he asked God to show mercy toward that brother. In Hiram's world, that pocket Bible was the little word. In Hiram's world, Thomas Knight, his brother, was a pain in the ass. The big word had been wrapped in butcher paper and sealed in wax, then crated in cherry wood to be opened again only when the altar was built and consecrated in Knight's New Christ Church of the South. That altar would then be the site of his anticipated marriage to a woman he had not yet met, but whom he was sure waited for him in Florida, all part of a divine plan in which God had provided a role for him and his progeny. And with a wife and children, Knight could then open the big word and add names to the family tree that had begun branching on the inside front cover with Jacob Knight in 1778. Knight's gun 
that he took to Florida was useless. It was a long-bore, single-shot buffalo rifle that had served him well in the American West, safely distant from a target, time to load and aim, the barrel resting on a tripod. That gun was deadly. But there were no vistas in Florida, and no animal in Florida was as dumb as a buffalo. Knight had showed the gun to his guide as they began the barge trip up the, up the river, and the guide had grunted and spit before saying, Perhaps you could use the butt as a club. <laughs> Pythagoras Jones was Knight's guide, and he had the misfortune of being the blackest Egyptian in America. His life since arriving in Jacksonville in 1848 had been a series, a constant series of explaining himself to any white man who questioned his lineage. His British accent, his papers, and his usefulness as a guide had all helped to keep him free. But he had still acquired a slave's habit of dissembling around white folks. Think them fools behind their backs, and never let them know how smart you were to their faces. Before and during the recent war, Pythagoras had worked on the Underground Railroad to the north. He had been successful because he had been cautious. Unlike some others who packed up entire families and seldom asked them questions, Pythagoras had aided only young, healthy men whom he trusted to keep quiet. Unlike some others, Pythagoras had, as he eventually told only himself, quote, a zero percent return rate. It was a calculated phrase and a bit too mercantile for his friends who funnel black souls to the north as a mission, not as a problem in commerce. Mm-hmm. After the war, Pythagoras wrote to Thomas Knight to thank him for his help in Pennsylvania, a gesture he repeated with a dozen other benefactors throughout the free states. And to his surprise, Knight was the only one who wrote back. And frequent correspondence began, discussions of philosophy and politics, and then Pythagoras was mystified to read one day that Thomas Knight was coming to Florida, that he had been called to Florida, that he wanted Pythagoras to help him find, quote, a virgin forest mourned by still waters to be Christ's new city. Pythagoras decided that Knight had lost his mind, and he wrote back, discouraging him from coming, but the letter never cut up with, caught up with Knight. He had waxed the big word and was already descending from Pittsburgh. Pythagoras had had his fill of religious zealots, so he retreated, thinking he would be safe in Lincolnville, home to a hundred former slaves who now live by fishing and hunting. He was astonished to discover that they'd been waiting for him and Thomas Knight. Evidently, Knight was more methodical than Pythagoras had given him credit for, so the black Egyptian resigned himself into waiting for the white man and his gold. And as he realized, he knew the perfect spot for Christ's new city, if Knight brought enough gold. And there's Thomas Knight <laughs> going to Florida. And that's how it all begins. And that's how it all begins. And then, you know, when you you tell about the establishment of the city, but then you, you skip forward a few generations. Mm-hmm. And um, how many? How many generations? Uh, I think I skipped two generations. Okay. Because you, once, you, once you meet, um, um, oh Lord, I have forgotten a character's name. Um, Jit? The, uh, the rich, the Nor- rich knight. Norton? Norton Knight, yeah. <laughs> Norton ta- is able to talk about his father and grandfather, sort of a couple of lines here and there. 
basically, you, you want to get jump from 1866 to the present as quickly as possible. Right. Uh, but all the history is there, and then what you'll discover is Norton is the beneficiary of all that night money. Thomas Knight's nephew has gone down, taken tens of thousands of dollars, bought hundreds of thousands of acres, and the Knight family creates a town in central Florida. Um, and uh, as you learn, the trick is their wealth is based upon that land because they will let you live in the town. You can build a business, build a home, but you have to rent the land from the Knight family. And that is their wealth. And um, and are there any towns like that where all the land is owned? Uh, I don't by a think so. Okay. Uh, maybe, <laughs> you know, with all the news from Florida nowadays, I'm, I'm tempted to say that Disneyland is like that. Ah. And, and, the, and the Florida governor is trying to take the land back. But that might not be comparable. No. But you do write a lot about Florida at the South, and yet you've lived in. Are you still living in Iowa? Oh, I've lived in Iowa uh, since 1980, except for three years when I lived in Florida. So why do you keep returning oh. to Florida in your books? Oh, <laughs> uh, Florida is a lot more interesting than, than most other states. <laughs> uh, one, it's it's not like other states. It's um, it's not really southern. It's It's the environment that makes Florida different. And Florida used to be totally unlike every other state in America. It was a jungle. It had wildlife like no other place. Um, So old Florida is almost mythic, and it it, it creates these mythical situations. Um, Now, part of the, the, the theme of the new book is that capitalism and progress have basically destroyed the old Florida. Um, it, it, it's just another conservative redneck state, but it has these really weird characters in it, um, and that appeals to me. And uh, so I, I keep writing about it. Now, do you go back and visit to kind of refresh your mind about details of oh, place? Because you do write I, I about. I go back to vacation. Okay. I, I, I vacation because. As much as Iowa is a nice state, it does not have an ocean. And <laughs> I really need to see the ocean once a year. Ah, so you go back frequently. What part of Florida do you most often go visit? Go back to St. Augustine. That's where I lived for three years. Okay. And where is that? Uh, just south of Jacksonville, northeast Florida on the Atlantic coast. Okay. It's supposedly, and it's, it's interesting, it builds itself as the oldest city in America. It was established in 1565, and it's been continually occupied since 1565. So there's that natural symbolism of history in America embodied in that one little town. Wow. I've never been to St. Augustine, but I've been to other parts of Florida, like Key West. Is 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 it at all similar? Um, uh, no, and <laughs> Key West is its own little world down there, you know, the Comp Republic. Um, St. Augustine is Spanish. It's, it's, it's a holdover from the Spanish settlement, and they've, they've, their economy is based on tourism, the maintaining the old Spanish 
downtown, Spanish forts. Um, so that's different. Um, Key West, I, I went to Key West, what, 20 years ago, and it was, I literally enjoyed it, but, but my friends tell me that it's become much more commercialized now than it used to be. Mm. And it's, it's, have you been there lately? Uh, 2008, I think, is when I was there. Well, since then, they've now allowed cruise liners to, to dock there. Ah, that would change which, it. <laughs> yeah, they pull in and they just, you know, they just, those things are huge. They park, they obstruct the view, they let off a thousand tourists for a day in Key West, just, you know, and just go in there and race hell, get on the boat and leave, and another boat comes in. Um, it, whatever ambiance Key West had, it's really, is, is going fast now, is my understanding. Yeah, I can kind of see that that would happen. That would happen. Yeah, there was something about when I was down there and reading about how the, like the road to the keys was built. And I, um, I bought a, a book about the guy who built that and it was really, oh, Flagler, Henry yeah, and it was really fascinating. Henry Flagler also developed St. Augustine. I mean, he, on his way down to South Florida, he stopped, he's buried in St. Augustine. Okay. And he Henry was, Flagler, he was in business with, um, Frick and and Morgan and everybody yeah. in the railroad business. Yeah, uh, he, he created Flagler College in St. Augustine. Uh, the church is there. He's buried in the church there. Um, I bet there's I, some he, interesting story. You could probably uh, dig up some interesting stories around him. Oh, <laughs> I think they've been done. I mean, the fact that he 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 institutionalized his wife and married a, a younger woman. Aha, uh-huh. uh, is is a great story. I mean, great in the sense of literarily great. I mean, yeah. Evidently, just really, he was a robber baron. I mean, he's one of those right. people who just right. did what he wanted to do. Yeah. You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Larry Baker. We're talking about Wyman and the Florida Knights and some of his other books. So, how long did you? You said you just you just wrote a book in like six months or less than six months. But how long did you spend on Wyman? Wyman took me about oh, I'm killing it. About sixteen months. I can usually do a book in a year. Um, Wyman took sixteen months. Uh, the new book it took me ten weeks. Wow! And, and that was like for some reason uh, just a white hot um, idea of um, taking a Harry Chapin song, Taxi. <laughs> do, do you remember that song? I think I do. This, this stone taxi driver is driving out in the rain, and he picks up this woman who turns out to be his old girlfriend, and they re- reminisce, but then at the end, they part ways again. Um, I took those two characters and built a novel around that situation and added to it my experience running a movie theater in Oklahoma City where this taxi driver shows up one night, and he meets the ghost of Harry Houdini and Marilyn Monroe and Mark Twain and <laughs> Harry Chapin, Patsy Cline. Um, and these these ghosts are helping him get his girlfriend back, who's now a woman. It's been 30 years since they've seen each other. And this, the premise is he's got to get her into that theater. 
and the guest, uh, the ghost will will help him get her back. <laughs> That's the story. So now um, you published Wyman with Ice Cube Press, and I, I interestingly enough, I finally met Steve a couple of weeks ago. I was in Iowa City during the. Um, uh, that they had a literary festival, the Mission yeah, Creek. Mission Festival. Yep, yep, yeah. Mission Festival. And I and I got a chance to meet him. I've talked to him. Uh, I've interviewed him. I've, you know, he's sent me any number of authors, and, and we finally got to meet in person. Um, so what's your, when you're, you've published a number of books with him now, mm-hmm. correct? How many? Right. Uh, five. Five. And... How like how closely does he do you work with him in the editing process? Well, Steve, uh, here's Steve's problem. This is a good problem to have. He's a one man operation, and he's so busy with so many writers that I think he lets me sort of work on my own. Uh, I will write, um, I will hire somebody to, to proofread and copy edit and everything. Um, but Steve doesn't do a lot of direct edit, editorial work with me. He sort of mm. trusts my judgment. Great. And how, like when you're writing, what's your writing process like? Do you, um, are you someone who does the whole first draft and then goes back and works it? Or do you work it as you go? Oh, both. I mean, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll write. And the next day I'll go back and I'll reread what I wrote the day before, tinker with it, and, and then keep going. Uh, and then I'll go uh, get to the end, and I'll go through, because it's like, you know, you tell freshman students in composition, pay attention to how you end your essay, because you're likely to have ended different than how you started. Because writing is this process that reveals to you what you're trying to say, these are, these are teacher cliches here, but they're absolutely true. You write, and then what you discover is, oh, my God, I, I ended up here, but I really need to go back and set up the ending better than I did. Mm-hmm. Because it, you, you don't come to that ending until you've sort of meshed out all these other issues of writing and characters and sequence. Um, yeah, Wyman is um, dramatically structured different than the way my first draft um i had all sorts of flashbacks back and forth and i and i finally took all those and went at the end and says you know those need to be together to give you a coherent history at one time instead of bits and pieces over the whole length of the story um and and the ending i sort of knew where i was going with that and of course the ending even changed the closer i got to it and um, it's the same way with the ghost book. I, I sort of knew where I was going, uh, but at the end, there's a, there's a surprise ending. It surprised me. <laughs> and it surprised you. Do you write for the most part from beginning to end? Uh, or do you yes, ever, like, but, but say, okay. It's <laughs> yeah. not the same thing as saying chrono- chronologically. Right, right. But in the way the book ends up being structured, for the most part, you're going from the beginning to the end of the right. story. Because some people don't. You know, they they write different parts. Or maybe, maybe for example, if they have a number of characters, they'll write all of one character and then all of another character, and then they'll intersperse them. Um, 
And I, you know, I, I don't know how to tell people to, to write. I mean, it's so subjective. Um, I just tell them that, first of all, you, you have to write and not talk about writing. Well, that and is a very go, good point. <laughs> and you have to go back and you have to rewrite. Do those two things and you can call yourself a writer. How much do you think, time-wise, do you spend writing versus rewriting? Is it 50-50? Uh, what, do you, what are you calling free writing? No, writing and rewriting. Oh, rewriting. Yes. Uh Oh, the writing is is seventy five percent. Okay. Uh, and you know, it's one of the. I'm, I'm not proud of this, but most of my books, the draft, the, the version that's print, published, is about seventy five percent first draft. Oh. It's it's the twenty five percent revisions that make everything work, but uh, no, I don't. I don't. I know writers who are obsessive and they do line by line by line. Um, no, I'm interested in, you know, it, the rewrite is when you can step back and first of all see the total picture and then go back in deep and try to make that total picture clearer. Um, it's, I, it's the difference between, I'm looking for a metaphor here. So difference between <laughs> looking at a, at a at a pastel painting, a pastel drawing, complete, versus a, you know an, an oil paint drawing. Uh, it, it's it's richer and deeper um, and more precise. And but, took more time. And more time. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now we've. I know when we talked back about a good man, we talked about the fact that your first book or maybe it was your second but you had a very you had a great success with flamingo rising yeah and how that was a plus and a minus in your writing career later do you want to (laughs) revisit that a little bit (laughs) well uh, you know let's let's rip those scabs off (laughs) Uh, no i I got very lucky in my first book i got a great a great agent a great publisher a ton of money uh, and it, it sold very well. But here's here's the dirty little secret. In all of those sales, it never recouped the advance money I was given. Um, so the publisher actually lost money on the book, even though it sold a lot of copies. I mean, that allowed me to sit back and, and write at leisure for the rest of my life, but it became harder to get interest from that publisher again for a second book. Right. Um, that, that's a fairly common story. Um, and I got lucky the first time, did not earn back the advance, uh, but got enough that I can comfortably live the rest of my life. And, well, not now. I mean, I've used all the money up putting my kids <laughs> through college and taking care of medical bills and stuff. But, um, I, you know, I, I now can write and uh, I'm a small publisher who, who finds me an audience, a small audience, but um, I'm fine. Now, when I read your, like reading Wyman in the Florida Nights, this could be a big book. It could be a big a bestseller. It's of the quality and of some of the some of the top books of today. I agree with you. What is the problem? <laughs> so what is the problem? That's, you know, what makes one book um, 
like Hamnet or something, a bestseller. Well, and at a certain point, you know, I, Wyman, everybody who has read it loves it. And I say that sort of objectively. The trouble is, very few people have read it, uh, and it's, it's, it's not gotten any, it got one national review, uh, and that's it. And it didn't even get, you know, the basic literary publications like Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, Library Journal, Booklist, it didn't get reviewed in any of them. Almost nobody knows about this book. Mm. It's driving me crazy, Steve crazy. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe that'll change. From your <laughs> lips to Oprah's ears. Yeah, really. I mean, you've got you've got some great blurbs on here. I will say. Well, yeah, uh, I yeah. I have friends who who read the book and <laughs> like it, and um, like I, I love this one. Florida is not just a place, but an idea, a fever dream, a place to gamble and win big, and sometimes a place to lose it all. Larry Baker takes a big imaginative swing at this distinctive place and hits a literary home run. It's part Southern Gothic, part history lesson, part adventure, and a fully immersive experience. And that's from Craig Lancaster, author of And It Will Be a Beautiful Life. And Craig is obviously a very insightful, perceptive man. <laughs> and I appreciate it. And, and he's a great writer. And I pre- Here's the thing. Craig and I went to high, the same high school. 20 years apart. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and we both end up being writers. <laughs> well, Larry, we are about out of time. And okay, remember, make me look good, sound good. I will certainly. I think you've done that yourself. Now, we always close with a quote, and you mentioned that um, that one of the themes of the book is about faith. And um, so I found a quote on faith that has kind of a double meaning for this book. It's from Elizabeth Elliot. Don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. Uh-huh. Well, let's assume <laughs> it's, all, it's still there somewhere, and I'm just waiting for it to sprout again. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us again, Larry, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you very much, Bye-bye. <laughs>